Hello and welcome to Unsolicited, the pop cultural podcast with a fu- <laughs> okay. Hello and welcome to Unsolicited, the pop cultural podcast with a philosophical twist, the one you definitely didn't ask for. <laughs> We're your Sydney hosts, Jen Cuvray and Cruz Wilkins-Wheat, and in today's episode we're covering the Platinum Jubilee and having a conversation about the Republic versus the Monarchy. But first, we're sweetening it with a review of the 2021 film Spencer and talking about its portrayal of the royal family. But before we get into all of this, Jen, what have you been loving this week? Okay, so my recommendation for this week is the show Everything I Know About Love. Mm. It is a British show, but it's available on Stan. Mm. It's based on uh, Dolly Alderton's book of the same name, which was sort of a memoir. Mm. And this is based on true events, but she's fictionalised it to an extent Mm. um, to make it, you know, a cohesive TV Mm. narrative. If you've listened to Dolly on her podcast, she had a podcast called The High Low. She's just got this, like, very good sense of humor these amazing kind of little quips and witticisms and they're all worked into the dialogue to the extent that I can tell that she's written it and she's the sole kind of screenwriter of the show Mm. so it's about that kind of post-grad period Mm. um so after like herself and three friends have just moved to London having graduated with arts degrees and relatable yeah and they're just (laughs) yeah and they're kind of figuring out their lives in like the mid um 20, 2008, 2010 kind of period. Mm. Um, so, you know, bringing back the skinny jeans. Uh. <laughs> um, but, yeah, it's it's really funny and I highly recommend it. How many seasons? So there's just one season. I okay. think it's of eight episodes. You know when, like, shows just, like, capture girl conversations that you've had or, like, <laughs> men that you have definitely known <laughs> and slept with? No, no. Anyway. What are you anti-recommending me? Okay, my anti-recommendation is more of just a general gripe. <laughs> um, it's about the airing of the Tonys. So the Tony Awards aired last week. Mm. Um, and I was annoyed because I couldn't watch them. They didn't air on Australian television, which they normally do. Mm. Um, and now the way to watch it is the first two hours are on Paramount+. Plus, mm. And the second two hours um, were aired on CBS, which is a network in the United States. Weird. And it's that classic kind of trend towards the commercial airing of the show is the awards for like best actor, best actress in a leading category, the musical performances. And the first two hours that you have to subscribe to watch are just like the other awards, like set design, costume design, the ones that people don't care about as much. I think it's kind of sad that they sort of (laughs) admitted that by separating them into literally different platforms. And also... I don't have Paramount Plus. I don't know anyone that has Paramount Plus. And I'm not going to get it just to watch the Tonys, but I love the Tonys. I love Broadway. I'm going to find a way to watch all the performances. The streaming services are just trying to bring down live musical performances. They are. The tyranny has begun. They are. Um, Love that. Anyway, what about you? What are your recommendations and anti-recommendations for this week? So I am really into true crime podcasts. Mm -hmm. And if you are like me and you just like to switch off listening about some really horrific murders, (laughs) some unsolved murders. Just get some perspective on your life. (laughs) Just bring it back. Um, These are my top three recommendations. So the first one is the first season of Serial, run by Serial Productions, who are an offshoot of the New York Times. So it's very well produced. And it's set in Baltimore, and it's covering the 
murder of Heyman Lee, who was a high school senior who disappeared from school one day. People don't really know what happened, but her classmate, her ex-boyfriend, um, was taken to prison for the, the murder. And it just goes through and tries to analyze whether he's innocent or not. And it leaves you wondering, is he innocent? Is he guilty? If you have an opinion, please let me know. <laughs> the second one is Sweet Bobby, which follows a catfish case. It's such a thriller. I just, I sat in bed being like, I'm scared and I'm excited. <laughs> so definitely look at that one. And my last one is all about disappearances. It's called Disappearances. <laughs> Very original. Um, and it just takes uh, different disappearances from all across the world. Um, and just goes through them every episode. And it's good because a lot of the times they connect to greater systematic issues, which I really like. Um, and they're just, I won't say they're a bit of fun. They're just a bit of interesting information. So if you love true crime, check those out. What are you here to complain about? <laughs> okay, so my anti-recommendation, I didn't have an anti-recommendation, but like a warning to all my friends in the inner west. So recently my roommate and I, Shout out to Coco. <laughs> um, roommate, excuse me. Jen was, you know, in the background. We planted a herb garden in our little garden. So we planted things like sage, mint, coriander, rosemary. And it was very adorable. And we went inside. And after a couple nights, we walked out. And we were like, where's the coriander? The coriander has disappeared. We suspect some rodent has come and eaten the coriander. But it's not the case of it slightly being chewed up it has disappeared like the roots are gone the roots are gone and yeah. it's like there's salt where it should be located and it looks i think this is the beginning of some sort of scary movie like we're being the curses has begun we're being haunted because they've taken our coriander i believe this is the first sign of an apocalyptic event yeah so basically we don't recommend trying to have a herb garden no. not in the inner west not coriander <laughs> in the coriander just like grow up and spend three dollars <laughs> at the woolies metro um but if you have any ideas about what stole my coriander please let me know So something I came across on Twitter this week mm -hmm. was a story about how the dress that Kim Kardashian wore to the Met Gala, Marilyn Monroe's dress yep. that she wore to sing Happy Birthday to JFK, Iconic. has actually been um, allegedly damaged by Kim in the wearing of the dress. So some of the crystals off the back are missing and it looks like the seams have kind of been pulled um, at the zipper at the back. Mm. And so everyone's blaming Kim for <laughs> wearing the dress. And I actually think the more important question is why did someone let her wear it? Like Kim asked obviously, but you know, she's not the custodian of the dress. It's not her property and it was lent to her. So why was it lent to her? And like, that's the person who should really be held responsible. Hmm. Um, I, I also don't know like to what extent this is something that we should care, really about. care about. I agree. <laughs> because obviously, you know, it was a very iconic moment in American history. Yeah. And you know, Marilyn did have a very kind of like turbulent life, but there are a lot of people saying like Marilyn never had anything and this <laughs> was the dress that was hers and Kim's completely like taken that away from her. And I don't know if it's that. I just feel like it's an excuse to hate on Kim Kardashian. I don't think Marilyn Monroe would have cared mm -hmm. that she wore this dress. Like she was doing it obviously to honor Marilyn Monroe. That's all well and good. It wasn't 
um, an upstaging of Marilyn Monroe. It wasn't a disgrace to Marilyn Monroe's life and career. Yeah. So yeah. it was I, a disgrace to the theme of the Met the Gala. The theme of the Met Gala. <laughs> she should have just done it when it was about America. Yeah, it was about Boys, grammar of American society or something. Boys, this year it was the Gilded Age, <gasps> which denotes a specific period in history, but I don't think anybody looked that up. Anyway, I think you have a slightly more serious tone story. shift. Mm -hmm. I love the tone shift with the news stories. So before we get into conversations and have a laugh about the royal family, which we will, uh, we also need to bring it all back and preface this discussion with the kind of obvious context of colonialism and kind of the ongoing effect of colonialism on First Nations people. And so my news story relates to that. So last week, there was a Stop Black Deaths in Custody rally at Town Hall after the acquittal of the Northern Territory Police Constable for the shooting death of Comandre Walker, the UNDMU elders called for a national day of action. And this day actually marks 15 years since the Northern Territory intervention was launched. If you haven't heard about this, in 2007, off the back of a report, the Howard government accused Aboriginal communities of neglecting and abusing children to justify some of the most racist and degrading laws in modern legal history, I would say. Um, and the Human Rights Commission actually did a study of uh, the proclaimed abuse happening in these communities and it was nowhere near as endemic as the government was accusing it of being and the government used this to intervene into 73 first nations communities where they increased police presence they instituted paperless arrests which means that they can take and detain people without charge they withheld indigenous people from half of their welfare payments and acquired the land previously held under native title Indigenous people were fired from jobs on country, restricted from alcohol and pornography, and the government also removed considerations of customary law and culture in trials and bail hearings. I really want to stress this discussion because we're going to talk about the Uluru Statement, and it was rightly pointed out to me in conversation recently that before we talk about the statement, people need to also talk about direct policies that affect First Nations people and get mad about that. The Northern Territory intervention was introduced by the Liberals. Then in 2012, the Labour government repealed it and replaced it with the Stronger Futures in the Northern Territory Act, which maintained a lot of the same laws from the original uh, Northern Territory intervention. So this act that Labour introduced in 2012 will cease this year, um, 10 years after it passed, unless the current government, Albo's government, continues to back it. So... Before people start calling on Labour for something like an Uluru Statement, and before we even get into discussions about the Republic, it's important that people are calling for the stop to the Northern Territory intervention. I'll share the demands um, from the rally on our Instagram as well. Okay, well, now that we've gotten all that out of the way, <laughs> on to our first segment, which is on Spencer. Now on to our first segment, Spencer. So Spencer is a 2021 film directed by Pablo Lorraine, starring Kristen Stewart as the late Lady Diana Spencer, former wife of Prince Charles and mother of Princes William and Harry. It follows Diana over the Christmas of 1991, dining with the British royal family at their estate in Sandringham, next door to the country property where she grew up. Her marriage is under strain, she's deeply unhappy and struggling with bulimia. So it's essentially a piece of historical fiction, and like Lorraine's other film, Jackie, starring Natalie Portman, is much more focused 
focused on an interior psychological story within a very narrow time frame rather than tracing the events of Diana's life and death. The film received generally positive reviews and Stuart was nominated for an Oscar and Golden Globe for her portrayal of Diana. So first let's talk about the positives and what we agree with the critics on and then we can talk about that performance. Spoilers ahead. <laughs> I know that this was a this was a very recent film but um, it's inevitable. Go watch it if you haven't seen it. Where is, where is it available on? Amazon Prime. Amazon Prime. Yes. Moving on. So the first positive that we want to talk about is the costume and set design. It just perfectly mirrored mm -hmm. real life events and outfits. Attention to detail. It's beautiful. Very well done. Props to those people. Yeah. I also, on that, I think one of the most obvious things that people point out is the film is beautiful. Like yes. the shots, the color palette, everything's connected. They bring in this very deep green, like orangey red yeah there's this very like nice like pastely faded yeah. filter on the yeah. camera so the cinematography was great i think that i think just before we get into the negatives we definitely loved the film in the sense of the direction yeah we found it enjoyable did we well <laughs> we we found we could appreciate a lot of it we, and we understand like why people saw it and were like wow this is so well done yes. this captures things perfectly from a purely visual perspective it does it does then she walks in. <laughs> <laughs> Kristen Stewart. Um, okay, first I have to say I love Kristen Stewart. Loved her in Twilight. There was a lot of anticipation about her performance. You know, I'm a lover of Diana Spencer content. You know, Prue is obsessed with okay, Diana. I don't want to say the O word, but yes, I'm obsessed. Um, I've watched a lot of documentaries about her. I've watched The Crown. I've watched the films about her. So I feel like I, I understand at least her portrayal in media. I've consumed a lot of it. Yeah, watched all the interviews. Watched all the interviews. Yes. I know I know the real Diana. So when <laughs> Chris <laughs> I knew her personally. <laughs> so when Kristen Stewart walked in and she first started oh. speaking, I we, burst out laughing. It was atrocious. Well we had heard a lot about it. She the Oscars had already happened. Yes. We were like she must have done a very very good job so we had high hopes yes. she walked in she delivered her first line and we were like we oh. just were all laughing we had to pause the film and i think that she had the accent sort of was there yes. in, but it but like i didn't even know because her delivery was so whispery so it was breathless. like it was so like breathy. yeah it was like oh i'm i'm so sorry like all the boys like i, I didn't mean to let you down yeah it's like what Obviously, I understand. At the end of the day, this is a fictionalized version of Diana. It's an interpretation of Diana. And I know Emma Corrin has said that about her portrayal of Diana in The Crown, that she wasn't trying to be Diana. She was trying to do her interpretation. But I just felt the American constraints of her accent on this portrayal. Like, I just didn't think, I, I, th I couldn't believe that this was a form of Diana. Well, I thought it was yeah. Kristen Stewart. Yeah, you, Diana did not come through and Kristen Stewart didn't leave the screen. It felt like such a weird, overly fictional, so unbelievable rather, mm. version of Diana. Yeah. Which I didn't appreciate. Yeah, and we'll get into that with some of kind of the ways the plot came through, I think, that will kind of flesh out that point. So there were some metaphors or analogies that were drawn as like motifs throughout the film mm. that were very kind of superficial and mm. <laughs> didn't, didn't make a lot of sense. So Diana in the film is having these visions of Anne Boleyn. Because she's related 
Apparently she's related she's to Anne Boleyn. She's not related Is to she? Anne Boleyn. I'm pretty sure that's why they included her, because... No, I think it's just that, like, oh, Anne Boleyn was also married to the king, oh. um, and he beheaded her, and she was oppressed by him, <laughs> and they were both members of the British royal family. Mm. And that was, like, the best parallel <laughs> that we could come up with. And so she just kept seeing these visions of Anne Boleyn, She's like walking through the estate or yeah. like in the shadows. And it was really eerie and also just a very tenuous, very thin comparison that yes. I just think was quite shallow and quite strange. I did enjoy the thriller aspect. I mean, when she first appeared, I think I was shocked. I was like, whoa. Yeah. But also like Diane didn't have like paranoid schizophrenia. <laughs> so I don't know what's going on there. The other motif that they had was that this scarecrow um, on the neighbouring property where Diana grew up um, next to the royal estate. And she keeps kind of driving past or going back to it and being like, oh, I made that scarecrow with my family when I was young. <laughs> and like wants to, you know, she takes the jacket off the scarecrow and puts it on. And it's like, I don't know what they were trying to say but Diana was not some farm girl who grew up next door always wanting to be a princess and made the scarecrow and now she's a scarecrow because she's just an object and she's just there to wear clothes. Like that metaphor I think was quite weak and also Diana's family literally leased the massive estate that she grew up on in Sandrium from the royal family themselves like she is not just like this naive little farm girl and I thought that was weird. Well I think as well it was just a condescendingly simple metaphor. Like, I think that's the issue. It's like, oh, like, both these women had terrible relationships with royals. Let's put them together. Yeah. Like, oh, she's a scarecrow. Like, <laughs> like it was just sloppy. Mm. And I don't have a problem with films that are very interior and don't have a lot of plot and they're just sort of vignettes or they're just sort of explorations of a, of a certain character. A or mentality. Yeah. That is not the same thing as just, like, going back to the scarecrow five times in the film and... Yeah, it, you know, it, wishing for your life as it was, yeah. never. <laughs> I feel like obviously the way it's been reviewed and the way it's been discussed is like it was this rejection of the regular biopic. Completely unrelated to this, I hate the biopics. I'm so sick <laughs> of biopics. I'm sick of sequels, biopics, and true stories. This was trying to be like a rejection of the biopic. It's described as a fable. A fable is obviously something definitionally that is not a true story, sometimes has a moralistic teaching. And that's just kind of become this workaround for a lot of people being like, it wasn't even about Diana. It was about a, a person in distress, a person having a breakdown. Yeah, well, on that, it was a quite thin interpretation of Diana in that this could have just been about some random British woman mm. with bulimia Mm-mm. at a family Christmas. It was so, like, untethered to, like, Diana's character in real life as we knew her. Like, you didn't get any of the warmth the, the power. Re- the reason why people love Diana, you just saw her in distress to the extent that it was sort of a- inaccurate. Inaccurate. Like, so inaccurate. Well, just, okay. To bring that back, I think it's just such a weird representation of the struggles that Diana had. Like, we know mm. that Bellinia featured in her life. We know that she had a really poor relationship with the royal family because she got put into the royal family very young. It was It's a very alienating and cold and mm. duty-bound organization um and she's someone who like is obviously very warm and loves family that's the way the story's been represented publicly but i think it's also this weird portrayal of diana like she didn't like she's completely rejecting the responsibilities that she had that she 
was the complete mm. fish out of water when she was primed for this role. She was very good at it. She and, was primed for this know? role from a young age and she was good at it and she wanted to be with Charles and all this sort of things. And it just feels like a very caricatured version of an American's understanding of the royal mm. family. And I feel like it was definitely capitalising off the Meghan Markle, Harry sort of conversations that were swirling around yes. and was capitalising on the fact that people just love any stories about Diana. And then in which case, it's just commercialising and capitalising again on Diana's life, mm. which is like, it seems to be the thing it's trying to reject, like the media portrayals of Diana, but then just kind of betrays its own premise by yeah. being another thing. I guess it was trying to point out the fact that we don't know her, but then it, you're drawing on all these kind of stereotypes of her. So are you trying to break down the Diana character are you trying to rebuild it I just I just didn't mm. appreciate it I felt like it was just a very weird and offensive portrayal of Diana that was just so removed from you know who she is perceived to be like it wasn't even a relatable version of Diana that is represented in the media yeah and I think <laughs> the um I think the Meghan Markle point is a really good one to make because that's really how I saw her being portrayed it was very much like oh, I can't believe I have to wear this outfit on this day and this outfit on this day and I feel so oppressed <laughs> and you know my life has been made miserable by the royal family and I'm not getting support for my mental illness and you know that's not why she exited the royal family she underwent a divorce Megan and her like there might be parallels in the way the media has portrayed them um, and the way that they were kind of beloved by the public initially but the reason that Diana's life, you know, moved away from the royal family was not for the same reasons that Meghan Markle did. Mm -hmm. And it was just sort of suggesting that Diana was like in complete rejection of that lifestyle when that's not necessarily true. You know, she wanted to make her marriage work. She loved her children. Yeah. She was very good at her role as like a public royal. So I just found that quite strange. And I don't think that that would have been that bad if they kind of gave any context mm. like they didn't link it to like the pressures of her circumstance or yes. you know, the strain on her marriage with her husband it just kind of seemed like she had an eating disorder um and everyone was a bitch about it and um, <laughs> yeah it just like it didn't give it it assumed you knew so much about her life it assumed that you had already decided that the royal family were evil yeah and it assumed that you knew about charles's infidelity you knew about the way the royal family functions. Yes. And it was that, and, and none of that was clear. And I find that strange considering this was directed towards American audiences. And I also think it just is a betrayal of a good story. Like, if you can't actually make me root for the, the person who, in reality, I'm genuinely a fan of, like, I feel like you've mm. already lost out in some ways. And for a lot of people, the royal family is considered like this terrible institution because of colonialism. We'll get into that. But the terms of why they're perceived as evil in her life is because they did it not... It was her personal circumstances. Personal... I just wanted to add one thing on the portrayal of her bulimia. As you said, we know it's something that she struggled with. But it's like it was the central theme in the film. Mm -hmm. There was a lot of stuff about food. So there were multiple scenes mm -hmm. of the staff in the kitchen and it was the man running the kitchen just reading out the menu and, and emphasising like how much preparation has gone into this and and the abundance of food that they have. Mm. And there was also another scene where she was binging in this room which had all these cakes and pastries and then, like, a very eerie, creepy Timothy Spall is, like, the butler and he <laughs> kind of catches her out. Yeah. And 
there's just this one scene that was so early in the film, it was so jarring. So unnecessarily early. Yeah, where they're having this, like, green pea soup at this very nice dinner. Beautifully shot. Again, we love the cinematography. Yes, and she's wearing um, a string of pearls, and then she imagines her necklace kind of falling off, and she imagines that she's, like, eating these pearls. Mm. Um, And originally it, it was not clear that she she was imagining this and it was so jarring because it was so early in the film that you thought it was just going to be like <laughs> you know following her around yes and then she kind of walks through the alleyway not the alleyway the hallway mm. and she's kind of swaying and then she immediately goes and throws up and it was just like I don't think it's fair that this film called Spencer which is about Diana and you know her psychology is so rooted in her eating disorder. Yeah, it's made it her whole personality. Yes. I mean, I think it was a symptom of, like, the pressure she was under, but again... That also wasn't made clear. Yeah, it wasn't made clear. And I think it was too much too soon with that scene. It was Mm. like, this could have been a climax, so it just came... It just ruined the pacing of the film. I think the other issue... Um, was the fight scene between her and Charles, which again, I felt it was meant to be this emotional climax, which is at the pool table. And it was boring. It was so boring. I was like, this is so, the pacing again is so bad. Um, And she was breathy and it it wasn't dramatic. And I just don't believe that Diana couldn't be full of fire. Yeah, and and he was just like, can you like try keep it together for one weekend? And was sort of disappointed in her because she was acting moody. And it's like, we don't have any context of like why he's awful or why they're upset with each other all we see is her being moody and then him being like can you stop please and it's just like it's, it's like the film believes in her weakness it's mm. like she wasn't weak so why are you acting yeah, like she is exactly. weak it's not helpful two final gripes the first one is there was random queer baiting at the end yes her dresser um admits that she's in love with her and Diana gets a real kick out of it, smiles for the first time in the movie and then is like in a better mood about her life. And it was kind of unnecessary, not rooted in any facts. It was super random. And the second thing is there's this line that the Queen says, which the Queen would just never say. It was something like, all we are is currency, my dear. And it's like, yes, you are literally on the $5 note, but like the Queen would never say something so like pass ag. That is so funny. Queen Liz delivering the sass at the end. Yeah. Well, that was our little review of Spencer. Again, yeah, very evenly weighted. (laughs) Yeah. Look, I know a lot of people loved this film and thought it was kind of genre breaking. Um, I'm sorry if we couldn't pick up on that, but (laughs) we were disappointed in too many ways. We're going to move on to our our next segment, the Platinum Jubilee. So this next segment is on the Platinum Jubilee. So the Platinum Jubilee marks Queen Elizabeth II's 70 years of service. She is the first British monarch to ever reach this milestone. The Jubilee is a public holiday which involves the celebration of parades, the Trooping the Colour, a service of Thanksgiving, a derby, lunch and pageants. The Queen, who is now 96 and lost her husband Prince Philip last year at the age of 99, did not attend the Thanksgiving service in her honour due to discomfort, which has led some to speculate that she may not be able to continue in her role for much longer. 
Her eldest son and first in line for the throne, Prince Charles, is 73 years old and the oldest heir apparent in British history. Not to get ahead of ourselves, but the Queen took the throne at the age of 25 in 1952 after her father died, and over her lifetime's attitudes towards the royal family have significantly shifted. So her death is likely to inspire a renewed interest in an Australian republic, especially under an Albanese government. But before we jump into that debate, what were your favourite moments from the Platinum Jubilee? Um, so I am a fan of the pageantry and the spectacle, like everyone else when it comes to the royal family. And I thoroughly enjoyed the little interactions between Kate Middleton and her four-year-old son. Yeah, Prince Louis. Prince Louis. So if you didn't see, he was doing things like, I don't know, just being a little four-year-old. Yeah, he was covering her mouth, he was making faces, he was like throwing a bit of a tantrum, yeah. having to watch the boring pageant, <laughs> and it was really cute. There's a lot of discourse coming out of that being like, yes, he's a relatable four-year-old. Like, thank God he didn't have a temper yeah. tantrum in Stormer. There was also a lot of stuff being like, oh, Kate's a terrible mother, can't really? control her son. Yeah. And also, <laughs> all stuff that was like, if this was Meghan and Harry's son, like, Meg would have been crucified over it for her son misbehaving. And it's like, he's four and he's bored. Let's not make it a dis- <laughs> like, let's not... Yeah, this isn't, a, this isn't like a reflection of their yes. parenting. I also enjoyed the little Paddington basket. I was like, can the queen act? This is so weird. Um, she's pretty good. She's good. And then it led into the we were rock you thing, which I thought was fun because I'm a fan of queen. And I was like, haha, queen. Though I didn't <laughs> love Adam Lambert. I know he's like part of queen now. Queen now. But I was like, ugh. Well, unfortunately, Mercury is not available. <laughs> <laughs> I really enjoyed this story that security guard of the Queen's told. So have you heard about this? So the um, security guard was talking about like one of his favorite moments with the Queen and it was when the Queen went up to Balmoral, the Balmoral Castle to Mm -hmm. just visit. And then she was like, let's go for a walk. And so she was dressed, you know, in her normal kind of dowdy, like, you know, gumboots going for a walk Mm -hmm. with a security guard around Balmoral. And they ran into these two American tourists and they were chatting to them and the American tourists were like, do you come here often? And they were like, yeah, we have a place um, nearby. And they were like, oh, wow, like you might, you must have seen the queen. Mm-hmm. Like you must have met the royals. And then the security guard was like, I actually, you know, have met her. And they were like, what's she like? And he was like, oh, you know, she's got a good sense of humor. Like she'll go along with a joke. Not, and the Americans just didn't pick up on it. Mm-hmm. And then because they were so impressed that this guy had met the queen, they took a photo with him and the queen took it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Wow. So that's, that was a funny little anecdote. Oh my God. And now you have to reveal how much you love Kate Middleton. Okay. I, at the time when I was in high school, beginning of high school, whenever she got married, um, I was a little fan of Kate Middleton. I was like fully into the princess mentality and like the mythos and when she got married because my dad worked printing newspapers so he works in a factory printing newspapers at night he would have every single newspaper that was covering the royal wedding and so I would bring them home and I made like two scrapbooks just like purely out of the royal wedding like propaganda when I was making my email account um my mom told me she was like you can't put your identity because someone will steal your identity if you do it on the internet and so I was like oh damn so I, I made my name Prudence Middleton so now when people email me they assume my last name is Middleton purely because I liked Kate Middleton that much and then I met a Kate uh, Prudence Middleton and it made it very confusing um I've since changed my tune about the royals well I I, I still buy into, still we still love Kate well I still buy into the pageantry and the spectacle. We still love Kate and we love her fascinators and 
we have no gripes with her parenting style. And that is obviously the word of today is gripe. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, to an extent, I still am intrigued by the whole spectacle in the same way that I would watch, like, the fireworks or something like that. But I've also come to view the royal family in, like, more of a critical light. I mean, just generally in light of their history and their position in society. And I like to think of John Oliver when he speaks of the British royal family. He says they are, quote, a group of emotionally stunted, fundamentally flawed individuals doing a very silly pseudo job. And I feel like it's mm-hmm. fine for us to do, like, oh, it's fine for us to enjoy the news coverage and, like, the parties and the fashion looks and, like, the royal wedding. I mean, because that stuff is literally designed to distract you from, like, I think the general obsolescence of the royal family. But um, I don't necessarily judge anyone for enjoying anything around that. Like, um, I think generally it's not, a, it's not a hot take to be like the royal family is problematic. Like, I feel like a lot of people would agree with us when, they, when we talk about, you know, colonization in relation to the royal family. And so like, for example, I don't think people consume media in ignorance of that fact, just generally in spite of it. So I don't judge people for that. But I do think that when it comes to conversations around the Republic, all the Platinum Jubilee, what I do notice is that people can compartmentalise the royal family and their history so that um, they separate what, what the British royal family represent today and like their general history and colonisation. And I think that's a bit more interesting because when we peel back a lot of the layers to something like the Platinum Jubilee and we're more self-aware about what it represents in society, I think that tells us a lot more. Mm. I think it tells us a lot more about like what how significant the republic is or how significant the platinum jubilee is and what it's actually trying to do this is put into context when we talk about the platinum jubilee tour through the caribbean Mm. so recently prince william and kate middleton went on a tour through the caribbean to celebrate the platinum jubilee i also suspect this was a tour to like gain some good grace for the monarchy to prevent other countries going the way of barbados which had recently become a republic and when they went to jamaica there was an open letter um signed by public figures like politicians, lawmakers, like business people, which asked for reparations and an apology for the treatment of Indigenous people, transatlantic trafficking, enslavement and denture. It says, quote, we see no reason to celebrate 70 years of the ascension of your grandmother to the British throne because her leadership and that of her predecessors has perpetuated the greatest human rights tragedy in the history of humankind. And I think like that puts into context like the relationship of colonisation to something like Platinum Jubilee. And obviously, if we go back in time, um, colonization is not was not started necessarily by the British, but they became quote unquote these pioneers of colonization. Like by like nineteen thirteen, I believe like the British Empire had almost like control over like twenty five percent of the world's population. Like the namesake of Elizabeth II, Elizabeth I, was known to like really move along a lot of like col- like the colonial force of the British Empire, like doing things like giving royal charters to people to like quote-unquote explore um, new lands or like really jettisoning the first English traders to profit from the slave trade and granted the first charter to, to the British East Indian Company which exploited India and Southeast Asia like that's a very significant history and obviously we can talk about what culpability the modern English monarchs actually have because they inherited a lot of this obviously we can say that they're direct benefactors of all of this mm-hmm. but then again like anyone who lives in like a, a white colonial state is probably a direct benefactor of colonization what is significant is that colonization is not just a, pro- a process of land in a country exploit it financially. It's about control and domination. And that control relates to governance, it relates to culture, convincing people that their languages are inferior to the English language, that their their writing and their thoughts are inferior to like the civilized great books of the English like 
um, the English cultural elite or whatever. And like that sort of ongoing colonial control is what the British royal family today are guardians of. Like when they do these tours of, you know, for in flavor of the Platinum Jubilee through the Caribbean, like what they're actually doing is perpetuating the, the cultural control, which is just like a very basic like example of ongoing colonization. Um, like for example, in her speech in 1947 in South, in South Africa, Elizabeth I um, said that her job is to service the great imperial family, which we all belong to, like that's her job. And so bringing this all together in the context of like Republicanism, I just don't think we can use terms or speak of the queen and like the head of the executive without reminding ourselves that this is an institution responsible for countries who have continuing poverty and inabilities to develop and civil unrest and religious disputes and loss of culture and <laughs> custom and language and like the destructive forces of drug and alcohol and disease and communities and intergenerational trauma and like you know all of that has a massive effect in the Australian context through First Nations people and so that's an important thing for us to be self-aware about when we consume the Platinum Jubilee and when we start this conversation about the Republic. Yeah, and I actually think both Prince William and Prince Charles, his father, have responded to the criticisms very recently in the really? past week. So both of them released statements saying that they're aware of the history of slavery and it brings them great sorrow to, you know, contemplate these challenges and they hope to, you know, work together to, to <laughs> better these countries obviously they can't be like and i'm out <laughs> um, <laughs> i single-handedly abolish myself <laughs> um and i've talked to mummy about it and um, but wow I, I just do think it's interesting that now that that's even a development that probably wouldn't have happened 20 years ago is that there's like yeah. public pressure on them to acknowledge it and they're kind of always in damage control these days i feel mm -mm -mm. yeah i just i think again that speaks to the weirdness of a royal mm. institution and like the colonial institution like continuing into like the modern day and how yeah. they're now like having to deal with like the weird like cognitive dis like inconsistencies yeah. of like trying to maintain a commonwealth which is just like a quasi-empire yes so we're trying to relate the platinum jubilee and you know the potential of you know death of the queen or waning of the the british empire to the potential for a republic in Australia, especially given Anthony Albanese's election as prime minister. Mm. So Albo has spoken publicly in favor of a republic in a 2019 dinner held by the Australian Republican movement. He said that a modern Australian republic is an idea whose time has come. He said at previous events, the republic is inevitable and that we should do it now so we can do it with pride. And this is not a new sentiment and Albo is not the first prime minister mm. to be supportive of a republic. Mm. Albo has, you know, in the past, especially in his um, victory speech, mentioned that the Uluru Statement from the heart and recognition of First Nations people in the Constitution would be his top priority. But when he was elected, the anti-monarchy group Republican movement claimed a republic will also happen because of Albo. So we do think that there's a feasible conversation that is likely to emerge if the Queen dies during his term as a Prime Minister, given people anticipate that popularity for um, the royal family and for the monarchy is likely to decline when Prince Charles mm. um, becomes the king because I, he's generally unpopular. I, Please see Spencer for why. <laughs> I anticipate a lot of think pieces about like, mm. is it time to become a republic? Yes, yes, I think so too. Um, and importantly on this, the Albanese government is already kind of making moves in this stead. So Matt Thistlesweight was recently sworn in as Assistant Minister for the Republic in sort of the outer cabinet. And um, that was a clear signal that it's, you know, part of um, Albanese's government's 
um, priorities agenda. or agenda to move towards a republic. Mm. The Australian Republic Movement Chair, Peter Fitzsimons, who you might know from releasing <laughs> um, all the books you buy your dad for Father's Day. A bandana. And his bandana describes um, describe this as a breakthrough because for the first time, quote, we have a minister of the crown devoted to removing the crown. And many monarchists were actually incensed um, by... Thistlewaite's appointment, the chair of the Australian Monarchist League labelled the move undemocratic, which to me <laughs> doesn't really make sense. Um, <laughs> but let's talk about what a republic would actually look like in Australia, because it's it's going to look different to the United States system because we have kind of inherited British principles of responsible government and the, the ministry and the prime minister. So Pro, do you want to explain? Yes. So you might know that in 1999, we had a referendum to decide whether we should have a republic. And the vote asked, should Australia become a republic with the Queen and Governor General being replaced by a president elected by the parliament with a two-thirds majority? So the president would become the head of state and head of exec, so the Governor General, and we would also have a prime minister as a head of government. Instead of a head of state being chosen on the basis of the prime minister's advice, which is currently what it is, it would be selected by parliament through bipartisan support. Just to clarify, the Queen is not chosen based on the prime minister's no, advice, the Governor General, General as the Queen's representative. Yes, if only. <laughs> um, there was also a part of this referendum, a preamble, but that's boring and irrelevant, so we're not going to talk about it. So the Republican, the Republic vote failed 54% no, 45% yes. It had to also pass with the majority of the states, which it failed. The only state um, that said yes was the Australian Capital Territory. Which is a territory and not a state. Oh, yeah, true. <laughs> <laughs> um, the, and Victoria was also close. I think it was like a 49-51. Um, surprisingly, the largest divide was Queensland. <laughs> you know, who would have thought? Um, and New South Wales mm. was also very close. Something interesting about the fact that obviously the states has to pass as well is because we are a federal system. Yeah. Unlike, for example, Britain, um, we inherited that from kind of the American model because we were uniting a bunch of colonies. But it's interesting because the states kind of have to get on board because the Queen isn't just the Queen of Australia. She's also the Queen of New South Wales, the Queen of Victoria, mm. the Queen of Tasmania. And there is a circumstance in which if the federal constitution was changed to remove mention of the Queen, each individual state would also have to remove the Queen yeah. from their constitution. So Queensland could just not follow through and wow. she could be the Queen of Queensland, <laughs> but not of Australia. And that's like technically possible. Mm. Um, and that's why it's Probably. important to get the states on board. Yes. So why did it fail? So a lot of Republicans disagreed on the method, the model we should be choosing to select the president. Um, a lot of people ended up defecting to the no campaign. People were running this line that a lot of the um, politicians were trying to expand their power. So Tony Abbott and, How and John Howard, who were against the Republic, mm -hmm. were marking it as the politician's Republic, suggesting that they were just trying to remove accountability, et cetera, et cetera. There's a whole mess of other reasons why people think it failed. Malcolm Turnbull, who led the charge for the referendum, he advocated against combining the roles of the Prime Minister and the President and advocated instead for a parliamentary Republic in which the federal Parliament appoints the President or the Head of State. So it's a bipartisan appointment model. And that was a model that was put forth in the referendum. Yes. But on reflection, he has argued that we probably should have had a plebiscite or in the future we should have a plebiscite, not asking whether we should have a republic, but asking what model. Um, because as you saw in the republic vote, it wasn't a question, should we have a republic? It was a republic with a model um, mixed in. He was going to ask direct election 
or parliamentary appointment. A lot of people suspect it also failed because there's general affection for the Queen, which is why it could be successful in the future. And it was also seen as this very elite issue, this kind of unimportant issue, this issue that wasn't relevant to people mm. who had other priorities. Um, for example, um, places like Wentworth, North Sydney, um, they all voted yes in the referendum and they had a yes majority, whereas other low SES areas in New South Wales were voting no. Mm. Um, so do you think um, we will, in our time, see a republic um, referendum again? And do you think that people care about this issue? I think that people do care, but I think that I probably reflect attitudes of a lot of Australians, particularly people our age, where I'm kind of ambivalent. Yes. Like, because we are legally independent from Britain, I don't feel like there's a necessity to separate from them for any reasons other than symbolic ones, Mm -hmm. which I do think are important. But I think because, you know, the Queen and uh, the British Parliament don't have direct bearing on any political happenings or any policy or anything in Australia anymore. I don't think that people really care as much. And I think that it is inevitable and I think we are likely to become a republic in our lifetime. But I think that that will kind of happen naturally as the institution of the royal family becomes like less and less viable. And on that point, I don't think that this conversation is ever going to come from uh, an act an, an activist way like people aren't demanding we become a mm. republic um but i do think that with the timing of albanese's rise as the prime minister and with the kind of i won't I dare i say the ending of the reign of the queen mm. that naturally i think the attitudes of people will turn towards this as a core issue like i think people are promising the like, people are saying that it's more important to prioritize the constitutional amendments that put First Nation representation. Yes. And I think that I agree with that. And I think yes. that if I had control over this, if I was the <laughs> dictator of Australia, I would do that. But yes. I think what will naturally actually happen is that moods will shift as soon as she passes. And part, part of that will be this like new Republican campaign. On the independence point, so what is the history of Australia's independence? What does that look like? So early before we federated in 1850, Um, colonial laws were required to have royal assent, the monarchy could disallow legislation. If colonial law was repugnant, that is inconsistent with the imperial law, then it was invalidated. Then we had the Colonial Laws Validity Act in 1865, which basically gave us more power to make laws um, that were our own, even if they were inconsistent with um, British law, unless they expressly said you could not do that. Mm. Then we had, you know, Federation, shout out to Federation. Mm. Then we had later in the 1920s, like 1930s, the Bellflower Report, which recognised after a lot of controversy that Great Britain, the Dominions were autonomous communities that they, that we weren't subordinates basically, but this wasn't law. It only came into law with the Statute of Westminster in 1931, which basically said that parliament would not extend laws Um, except by request of the Dominion. So we had independence on a federal level, even if we had laws that were repugnant to um, British law. This, however, created issues with the states because the states weren't mentioned in the Statute of Westminster, which is the problem you mentioned earlier. Mm. So in um, in the late 80s, we passed the Australia Act 1986 um, in Australia, and then the UK also passed the Australia Act 1986. And what they basically said is that even at the state level, you could have laws that conflict with British laws and it didn't matter if they were repugnant that did not disallow the laws in Australia. It also prevented people from appealing to the Privy Council Mm. um, and overriding the Australian autonomy over the judicial system. Yeah. And interestingly, some people think that the 8th of March 
um, which is when the Australia Acts were passed, should be the date um, of independence were we to change the date for a national um, holiday mm. uh, because that was the day that Australia fully became legally independent from the United Kingdom and you could no longer appeal to the Privy Council, which meant, which, you know, like you just said, it meant that Australian courts didn't have the final say on Australian laws. Exactly. So some people think that that it would be a more appropriate day. Yes, I agree. Um, so we have this freedom, but the Governor General, who, though David Hurley, who is our current Governor General, is an Australian, um, he, because he represents the Queen, in that sense, represents her interests, like he represents the Crown, um, has the sovereignty of the Crown, so head of state, head of the armed forces, fountain of justice, etc., etc. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's a technical term, not my opinion of this. That means he kind of has mainly, mainly ceremonial roles. Mm. Like the, the governor general and the governor can intervene at times. Like, yeah. like, like for example, um, the dismissal of Gough Whitlam in 73. Yeah. But it, basically it's a ceremonial role. They swear in, you know, the prime minister, they swear in ministers. At Albanese swearing in, he actually didn't mention the queen in his thank you speech. Really? Which is, is, was quite a kind of yeah pertinent times decision yeah, yeah times are turning so realistically we've had a conversation about what we think about it like do we care but do you think it needs to happen um I think that in terms of political priorities like we've already mentioned I don't think that it should be you know at the top of the list just because it is kind of a symbolic act and I think that political capital potentially shouldn't be expended on something that would be um you know so symbolic in some as a symbolic act that is not some, one in which people primarily care about like for example um enshrining like an indigenous voice for parliament or um the Uluru statement from the heart recognizing indigenous australians in the constitution is like, to an extent symbolic but i think that that is something um that people care about a lot more and feel a lot more affected by and has something that they've been campaigning for for years rather than um, kind of just distancing ourselves generally from an outdated institution which doesn't really have a bearing on people's day-to-day lives or yeah. um, isn't necessarily a reflection of the Australian government. I think the symbolic aspect of this, I'm actually... I actually think the symbolic is important. Uh, no, I think, I think too. the symbolic is important, like in the same way that the, the Australian flag is important or the national anthem is important because it, it represents what we perceive to be our identity. And I think after talking about the colonization and the history of colonization um, by the British Empire and what is represented through the Commonwealth, I just think it is significant that we still have um, the, that, that empire mm. who did colonize and you know, led the charge of, you know, intense violence against First Nations people still represents the the sovereignty of our country. Like, I think in that sense, we, we though we will always have the history of colonisation, having a colonial power still rule this country, I think, is uh, antithetical to a lot of the key things that we care about. And I also think um, making symbolic changes like this um, do enact really important cultural shifts that change policies and they change laws like for example saying sorry in 2007 was purely symbolic but it also had a really important culture shift about the way we talked about first nations history and i think moving ourselves further away from our colonial roots 
um, even if it were symbolic and even if we couldn't see it, sense the changes now, would probably have a long-term effect on the way we perceive our country and the way we deal with our history and the way we lionize um, the, you know, American, so the, the <laughs> British Empire and, and the Queen. Um, no, I agree. I think that symbolic changes are important. I'm just more talking about, um, you know, the extent Price. of political capital that like Albanese government has to expend and I think as we said before again he should pick up on the current when it inevitably you know shifts towards um a republic and all the think pieces come out mm-hmm. um but you know I don't think that it's something that no sh- yeah I sh- agree. should should come ahead of you know him fulfilling his campaign promises and I think that that's um links to what you noted about how a lot of people in lower SES electorates um voted against the republic because you know that was just not a priority for them it didn't affect their everyday lives Mm -hmm. and something like a plebiscite or a referendum is very expensive Mm -hmm. and i think even that you know takes away capital from i think where in the first year of albanese's term he should be directing it to other places i agree i mean it's not a situation where i'm like this should be his priority it's just <laughs> if it came down to me and i had a ballot before me i would vote I, republic. I, agree. I agree um and i think as well a lot of the issue that i find with people talk about if it, if it ain't broke don't fix it like if it's just continuing on it's not affecting our lives people kind of fall into this kind of status quo justification where if something is functional, then we have no mandate to actually improve on it. And I think that's wrong. I think there's difference between what is functional and what is right. And I think it is wrong that, uh, you know, a royal family who I think is incredibly outdated, who I think takes up too much civic costs, that have colonised half the globe and wrecked incredible violence against many of the people in this country, um, should have control of this country like I vehemently reject that as a concept vehemently (laughs) vehemently I (laughs) vehemently reject it um so I think uh that's why I do value the symbolic and when people act like it's just symbolic I disagree with that assessment because it is it is important um it's just not more important than um other symbolic things that we talk about right and is it more important than um resourcing a lot of you know key issues around first nations justice like we were talking about before at the beginning of the podcast do you have anything else to add the reason some people prefer a constitution monarchy to for example the american system if we were to completely change um our system of government is that the president and the executive branch in america has such concentrated power Mm. so much more power than the queen really over um over like people's lives like they can literally veto laws mm. by that mm. are passed by congress yeah so um, people prefer the checks and balances yes yes yeah i just don't believe the monarchy represents that check or like yeah they no, don't intervene that yeah much. but it's more just that like we might not want to emulate a system in which like the president had that kind of concentration of executive power mm. because there's no kind of um accountability between branches whereas here the british system that we have is like a prime minister and cabinet ministers are drawn from parliament. So they've mm. been elected by the people. Mm-mm-mm. I just think that because of our, our histories and the way they're set up, like we have the Westminster system, like that's probably going to be... We have the Washminster system. The Washminster? <laughs> we don't have the Westminster system because we have federalism. So we've combined oh, them. I hate that. Washminster. <laughs> Cancel that. The Washminster and mutation. The other thing that people talk about that I forgot to mention is that if you had a president that they might feel that they have more of a mandate to get involved in matters than a monarch uh, like mm, a monarchy that, would who like understand that they're just figureheads yes exactly yeah. and um i recognize that that is a true threat i think that people naturally do that but i i just imagine that 
if your roles and responsibilities are clearly defined, you'll probably stay within them. And you've got if you have your own checks and balances. I think they would need to probably rewrite a lot of the constitution yeah. because the roles and responsibilities of the executive are very vague. Unclear. If you, if you care to read the constitution, <laughs> it's short. You should you can get through it's, it. It's it's quite unclear. The yeah. prime minister isn't even mentioned. Yes, only the federal executive council. Um, but because we're <laughs> I think we've kind of wrapped up our conclusions on this. I think we kind of agree at a core. Um, let's round it off with a fun question. What's your favorite actress who's portrayed the queen or a member of the royal family? We've had, who have we had? So we had Olivia Coleman, Claire Foy um, as Helen Mirren as the queen. We've had Kristen Stewart, Naomi Watts mm. as uh, Emma Corrin Emma as Corrin, Diana. my fave. Um, Josh Charles as... Prince Charles. Charles. Wow, convenient. Like, what a good little matchup. Matt Smith as Prince Philip. <laughs> I actually think they're all incredibly talented. They have all done a great job. For some reason, I'm leaning towards saying Matt Smith. What? <laughs> I really like him. Like, the actor? or <laughs> The actor. I really I like, like Matt, Matt Smith. Smith. I think he was so good in that role. I think he yeah, was, he was. he's been underrated because it's... It, it's less kind of defining characteristics. He just got the posture and the accent very right. And I really liked him when he was Doctor Who. <laughs> really? Yeah. I loved off. No, I loved off during I, that I, I I back Matt Smith. I only back David Tennant. The Doctor. I like Emma Corrin. I, you know, I really felt like she was in touch with Diana. <laughs> this I, is what Prudence actually <laughs> wanted for Diana. <laughs> this is what I wanted. The representation. I think the crown is just a lot of fun. The Crown is great. The Crown is great. I like the drama. I like the way it represents its history. Um, yeah, so I definitely encourage. What I think we've all learned from this is that you should just watch The Crown. Yeah. <laughs> um, Cast off Spencer. Just watch The Crown. Get your education about the royal family from The Crown. <laughs> um, and have a lovely day. Wait, do we have anything else we want to say? Yes. Is it too late for me to anti-recommend Advance Australia Fair as the national oh. anthem? It is a bad song. It is such a bad song. I hate everything about it. What is what does Advance Australia Fair mean? I get it. It's like an old <laughs> term, but like it's just like I personally just don't like it musically. It is boring. It is it just doesn't not inspire. inspiring. Yeah. I know the Star Spangled Banner is notoriously hard to sing and has a massive range, but I'm inspired <laughs> by that song. When, like, a great singer like Mariah Carey gets on the microphone to sing A Star Spangled Banner, you feel moved. I feel patriotic for America. No one can sing Advanced Australia Fair without sounding dopey. Mm, no, some people can do it well. Really? Some people do it well, but, like, they're professionals. Yes, <laughs> yes, exactly. Have you ever seen, like, at sports games where, like, the team is, like, meant to be singing along and they're just, uh, like, <laughs> like you cut, in American, like, football, you cut to, like, the players and they're, like, Crying. tearing up <laughs> at the Star Spangled Banner and you cut to, like, the Wallabies or something and they're, like, Ugh. But I, can't, I prefer, <laughs> then, I definitely prefer that. Like, I hate that in, Mer in America they have, that mm. little saying they do before class the pledge to of yeah. allegiance i pledge allegiance to the flag of the united states of america and to the republic for which it stands thank you guys so much for listening we hope you enjoyed this episode we hope that you learned something we certainly did researching it mm -hmm. and don't forget to follow us on social media at unsolicited podcast subscribe and stay tuned leave a review and have a lovely day see you next week bye, bye.
This podcast was recorded on the land of the Gadigal of the Eora Nation. Sovereignty was never ceded, and we pay our respect to elders past, present, and emerging. Always was, always will be Aboriginal land.